Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I finally got back home Thursday from leaving Daytona that Monday morning, and I just wanted to go to the farm. Racing was a part of my life, but it wasn't my whole life. Well, let's get one thing. <laughs> Cat skid steer loader. So I can say it yeah, now, right? Yeah. When I quit, I quit. And the biggest reason I quit is I didn't know who to trust anymore. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault podcast. And listeners, thank you so much. The reviews for Firestorm 2000, 2001 the years that forever changed NASCAR have started coming in and Steve, I got to tell you, they've been pretty good. Well, I'm not surprised. They have been really good. And that's obviously very gratifying for all the hard work that we put into it. But David Newton 
on Twitter at David N E seven, five Oh six, six, one, three, two tweeted. I've listened to the first four episodes of firestorm. Good stuff, but intense. So I had to take a break. I know exactly how he feels. Rick, I've had to take a couple of breaks while listening to this myself. Well, it was very difficult material to produce, to write and all that. But then when I've actually listened to it as a disassociated listener, it has been kind of emotional at places and remembering exactly where I was when things happened. Obviously, I was at New Hampshire when Adam lost his life. I can remember exactly where I was when Tony Roper called the office to ask me if I'd heard of any rides opening up. Of course, I remember where I was when Dale had his accident. So there were a lot of memories during those two years, and they weren't exactly good ones. So, yeah, I can absolutely understand where David was coming from. Well, Rick, it's the same thing for me. I remember where I was for every one of those things that you discussed in this series. And it does bring back some very, they're tough memories. I mean, they're not pleasant, no question about it. But they're just tough to re-experience. But then again, I think it's a very necessary documentary because the effect it had on NASCAR. Aaron Clay at ABC Racing 54 tweeted, they pieced together so many interviews that were conducted over the years. I feel like I heard things for the first time, which helped me have a better understanding of the events and reactions that took place 20 years ago. Now that was the purpose of why we chose to do this project is to help people have a better understanding of what was going on. Finally, JL Steele at JL underscore Steele tweeted, just finished the series. I don't know what you can do to ever top that. While Dale got the most attention, thank you for remembering each of those men. Without contemporary work like yours, their stories would be forgotten in the future. That's the legacy of your work. Well, the stories that you tell, we don't want them to be forgotten in the future. That's part of the reason why this documentary is what it is. So listeners, Firestorm is now out on all the major podcasting platforms. We made sure that it was on iTunes, of course. It's on Spotify, so you can check it out. If you haven't had a chance to do that, please go check it out. Please listen. Please give it a five-star rating and a written review. Every little bit helps, and it helps people to notice what we're trying to do. In this week's episode, we're going to share the second and final installment of our interview with Ward Burton. And this week, Ward Burton talks about his being, (laughs) he talks about his being fired by a Winston Cup scene reporter. Not me, not me. (laughs) The first win of his Winston Cup career at Rockingham, his Daytona 500 victory, and the code he lives by. And Steve, Ward Burton takes his code very, very seriously. That's what I gather from this interview, Rick. This is one of those episodes where it is about way more than just racing on the racetrack. He was loyal and he turned down rides to stay with the teams that had given him his first big breaks in the sport. Sometimes that worked out and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it was to his detriment, but at the end of the day, he still had his code. He still had his ethics. And NASCAR is not heavily populated with drivers who remain loyal to the team owners who gave them a break. This sport is so competitive and drivers have such a will to succeed. 
they often decide the best thing to do is just move on. Well, Ward wasn't exactly like that. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the October 26th, 1995 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That featured coverage of a race that was so confusing at the time. It was won by Ward Burton. That was his first Winston Cup win. It was at Rockingham. I can remember being at that racetrack that day and just being completely and utterly confused about what was taking place. You know, I, I be honest with you, Rick, I don't quite remember it that way, but I do remember that I was concentrating on a story about Ward so much that what else happened really didn't come into play when I was writing that story. And our buddy, our good friend, Rick Mast, he dominated the first half of that race. We I'm cannot sure. fail to mention that. That's right. Don't forget. <laughs> we can't fail to mention that Rick Mast dominated that race until he had some motor problems. But then, as confusing as the Winston Cup race was, as disappointing as the Winston Cup race was for Rick Mast, the Bush Series race the day before featured an absolutely fantastic, phenomenal three-wide finish between Todd Bodine, Johnny Benson, and Mike Wallace. That was a finish, Steve. One for the ages, as they say. Also in this issue, I had a feature on Mark Hayes, who was a show car driver at the time for Bahari Racing and driver Michael Waltrip. And Mark was battling testicular cancer, and he lives in Yakinville, where I live, and we became good friends after me doing this story. He was actually a groomsman in my wedding to Jeannie. So to see Mark in this issue was kind of cool. Also, we have new Patreon support from Robert Vaccaro, and we have new PayPal support from Mark Steigerwald. So Robert and Mark, thank you. You have helped us produce the content that we're producing. People really do seem to enjoy it, and you have helped make that happen. And I've Really and truly appreciate that. So listeners, if you can, please help us out on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. The next year, 1993, you do win consecutive races at Orange County and Martinsville early on in the season. Then you won the season finale in Atlanta. How did the conversation get started about moving to Winston Cup? So our Hardy sponsor was Body Knoll, uh, who's a franchise, owned a bunch of Hardy's franchise. Body Knoll had gone to corporate uh, Hardy's there in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and got them convinced to come on board. At that time, I was getting uh, pretty good cup offers. But with Mr. Dillard giving me my really my first break and all, I just did not feel I – didn't, I didn't have a good conscience just leaving him. So I, I stayed with Mr. Dillard. And it, it, was, it was a rocky road, man. It, you know, we didn't have enough funding. Uh, Once you did move to cup. 
Yeah, Mr. Dillard. Now, we, we were in good shape in the Bush Series. Yeah. But it was a whole different ball game in the Cup Series. And, you know, uh, the gentleman – well, what happened, Freddie Fryer quit. The day that we were doing a press conference, him and him and Mr. Dillard was having some friction. It's, you know, it's a shame both of them have passed now because they both, they both passed last year. But Freddie was just real stressed out. I can remember going to talk to him that morning. He just, man, I can't, I just can't do it. So we went for quite a few months with really no leadership, and every single car mounted with lower rear quarters. Could you remember back in those days, you'd have, you'd have downforce bodies and no downforce bodies like Talladega Daytona. Yeah. Every one of them were no down for us. So, hell, we couldn't make Rockingham. We barely – we didn't make Daytona. We didn't make Rockingham. We barely made Richmond on second qualifying. So it was tough. But then, but then he found uh, Philippe Lopez and Ronnie Crooks. And uh, they started writing the ship. And I, I'll be honest with you, you know, with nothing, uh, those two could give me some hot rods at time. And, of course, we'd come into yeah. pits, we'd lose what we had gained. But um, at the end of that season, we were going to win the race at Atlanta. I mean, if you watch that last Atlanta race with 25 laps to go, we're leading it. Everybody else had blown the right front on the Hoosier tires, and they kept telling me to slow down, but it, it, that car was not going to slow down. Yeah. We were going to win the race, and the motor blew up. But... Uh, you know, at that time, I was getting offers, Ricky, but, you know, I wanted to stay there just to see it through. And then at the uh, latter part of 95, um, you know, it had become obvious to Mr. Dillard and to me, you know, we, we just couldn't keep – we couldn't go forward. So I, I was going to have to leave, and that's when – that's when he decided to uh, end our relationship. We just – actually, our last run – with Mr. Dillard was a six at Michigan. And um, we split ways the next week, and, and that's how we got with uh, MBNA and Bill Davis. Is it true that you found out about Mr. Dillard's decision to let you go? Is it true that you actually found out from a Winston Cup scene reporter? Yes, sir. Yeah, that and a, a gentleman <laughs> on the um, – uh, Bob Boyles used to yeah. do some of you remember Bob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bob used to do some of the press for uh for Mr. Dillard. So yep. Yep, it was somewhere Monday afternoon or something. Yeah. Yeah. Now had you already been talking to Bill? Because that was a pretty quick switch. You you, you ran for Allen yes, one sir. week and then the next you were Well Mr. Dillard, with, with you know, Bill. it was a tough thing to talk about. But you know, it was obvious that Mr. Dillard was keeping the team afloat with his own funding. Yeah. And, you know, Hardy's wasn't going to up where we needed to be at. Uh, so, yes, um, George Debenhart, um, who got MBNA in the sport, uh, he got in touch with me, uh, I don't know, about a month before then. So, so I'd already had some conversations with, with George and, and Bill and uh, – and Dave Algina with uh, MBNA. You go over to the 22 car, Bill Davis. You go to North Wilkesboro a few races after going to the 22 car, and you fail to qualify. 
was there any kind of panic that maybe this wasn't the right deal, or were you okay at that point? Well, if I, my memory serves right, I think my first race, well, I know my first race with Bill was Bristol, and we were running good in the motor, motor blue. Actually, that day, uh, MBNA gave me a, a 1952 Korean War Willis Jeep and drove it in the, uh, <laughs> drove it in the infield. <laughs> so, I mean, I still got that Jeep. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I felt like, I felt, I felt like I was going, I was in better stuff. Well, as a matter of fact, I knew I was. So, you know, anytime you miss a race, golly, it's, you know, it takes you days, days to get your head back in the game because it's, it's pretty much a balloon with all the air going out of it. But uh, it's just real disappointing. It's embarrassing, you know with everybody involved, not only your family, your sponsors, your team, but I mean, no panic, you know, okay. it's always another week. So you go to Rockingham at the end of that year, 1995, and NASCAR black flags Dale Earnhardt for missing lug nut, he comes in, it's actually there, then they throw a caution to put him back where he's running, but then he hits <laughs> while pit road was closed, all heck breaks loose, and you win. Ward Burton coming out of turn number four, looking for the white flag. It is in the air. He goes across the line and heads back into turn number one. Let's follow him around on his first victory lap ever. Ward Burton's black Pontiac working down into turn one, swinging wide off turn two for the final time. He's on the back straightaway. Ward Burton brings that race-leading Pontiac off the end of the backstretch, asking for two more turns, headed for the stripe. Ward Burton looking for the checkered flag. At age eight, he was racing go-karts, then motorcycles, and now in his 53rd career start, Ward Burton wins on the NASCAR Winston Cup Series with Rusty and Wallace coming over second. And we've got a crash up in turn number four, Eli. Darrell Waltrip got tangled up up there, goes head on into the wall, gets both the front and the back of the car as the checkered flag comes down. He and Jeff Gordon obviously getting together because Gordon has damage to the right front of his DuPont Chevrolet. We'll have to wait officially for all the finishing positions, but Jim Phillips, I dare say, some major emotions down in that Ward Burton pit. What do you remember about that day? We had a good, solid call all day. Uh, we took the lead pretty early. Uh, had I not made had them make a last-minute adjustment for qualifying, we qualified third, we'd have won, we'd have won the pole. You know, man, we, we had run great. The last two sets of tires were dead on the money. We were leading the race when uh, they threw the black flag, which they wouldn't have thrown for anybody else, I don't believe. But... Uh, Anyway, um, you know, we came out of the pits not leading the race. And Chris Hussey was he pretty much yelling at me because, I mean, you know, you don't want to get black flag, right? I think we were lined up fourth or fifth or something like that. Go back to the lead where it's just really unorthodox. Yeah, you know, it's unless unless NASCAR tells you to go back to lead or the flagman or somebody is to you know, but I did, and uh, I think it was seven, eight, ten laps ago, and I mean the car was just on the money. There was nobody at that moment. Rusty finished second, but no nobody could have challenged that car that end of that day. Were you aware of all the stuff that was going on with Dale and all that crap, and and were you concerned about it? What was what was going on in your mind at that point? Well, they threw the caution, so uh, you know, 
never expect anything to be easy. Um, had the caution not come out, we really didn't have any threat um, from second place. But didn't I comprehended it? I knew I knew what I was being told, like everybody else sitting in a race car. Um, I think the scoreboard changed a couple of times, you know. But you know, once we cross the start finish line, it's that's the least was my concern. <laughs> What did it mean to you to win a cup race? Hey, man, we were there, you know. I never felt like if you had the right equipment, right team, right resources, any harder to win a cup race than it was a bus race. You know, they're both, they're both hard. You just got everything got to come together, no mistakes made from a driver to pit crew, mechanical stuff. You know, it just it just really boils down to to be in a situation to win. You know, you've got to have the in-depth resources, and the better teams, you know, that's got all the resources, are gonna rise to the occasion more than the, more than others. The year two thousand, you went at Darlington in the spring, and then in the year two thousand and one, you win the Southern five hundred in the fall. After going four years without a win. Was there anything in particular that you had found at Darlington, or were you just comfortable there? I was always comfortable at Darlington. Uh, but to go back for a minute, you know, when they changed the body on the Pontiac in 96. So, I mean, our last race on 95, I think we, we finished fourth or fifth. Uh, I can't remember which, at Atlanta. I mean, we we had we really had stuff going on with not a lot of resources at at Davis Racing. They changed the body style. We went back to Rockingham to fight the next year, next year, and uh, we just didn't have it together, man. And it obviously that it had something to do with downforce. Goodyear changed the tires a little bit, but that just goes into the resources, but. 96, 97, part of 98, we gave away tons of races. A lot of it was, we, you know, the motor, the guys building the motors made some good power, but we didn't have dynos. So we blew a lot of motors. I made some mistakes. I mean, but there was a bunch of races from uh, the Poconos in particular, Charlotte. I mean, we just... There was no, there was nobody to compete for us. We, but we, we just would not finish the race. Yeah. So in '98 um, is when Bill finally uh, changed crew chief and got. To, and Chris had done a great job. Don't get me wrong. Chris Hussey was a great crew chief. We were just missing something. But when he brought Tommy Baldwin on board, uh, second race we finished second at Sharp. So you know. And Tommy brought guys with him. So the existing team was kind of built up with Tommy. And, and uh, Darlington, man, we just hit on something. So, I mean, if you go back and watch those races, we gave four of those races away, too. There was about a three-year time frame that when we loaded off a truck, you had to beat us. We beat ourselves four of those times. The weather got us two of those times. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, man, digging at Darlington was uh, – you just in that zone. You're in that mental zone. Nothing, nothing else. That's the one thing about a race car. I mean, if you ever try not to daydream or not to think about something else while you're doing something, it's a hard thing. Sitting in that race car was an easy thing. 
2002 Daytona 500. You make it to the mountaintop in the sport's biggest race. Um, any chance that you were going to get out of the car on the back stretch and help Sterling fix his fender? <laughs> <laughs> well, looking back on it, you know, it was back when we raced to the line uh, when him and 24 got together. You know, I was surprised it didn't blow with us racing back to the line. That's how much it was smoking. So if you look look back at what Sterling did, it was his only chance not to have to pit. Pretty daggone smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, had he got away with it and could he have pulled, I don't think he could have pulled it off anyway, right. but if he could have, you know, he'd have had a shot to win the race. Meanwhile, up front, Ward Burton, Elliott Sadler, single file coming off of turn four. Ward Burton trying to win the biggest race of his life. As he comes down to the line, he's going to see the white flag. One lap to go. Elliott Sadler right behind him. Jeffrey Bodine, Dale Jarrett, Mark Martin, and Ryan Newman. They go after him. And trouble. One car gets tapped, spins out of line, and a big plume of smoke skitters all the way off to turn number one, and that will be Dale Jarrett's machine as they race off to turn two. Jarrett is out of it. Burton is on the move. He has got three car links in hand. Ward Burton off turn two for the checkers. Here comes Ward Burton onto the super stretch for the final time this afternoon. Elliott Sadler, two car lengths behind him with Jeffrey Bodine in third. Then comes Kurt Busch, but it's Ward Burton in front in turn three. This is for all the marbles in the great American race. Ward Burton brings the field back to turns three and four. Elliot Sadler not close enough to the charge. The checker flag of the Daytona 500. It's been since 1977 when a Dodge won at Daytona in a Winston Cup event. Today it happens again. Ward Burton is going to win the 44th Daytona 500. Ward Burton, Elliot Sadler, Jeffrey Bodine is third. Kurt Busch is fourth and fifth is Michael Waltrip. What do you remember about the last few laps? You know, not a lot. It was single file start. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It might have been Jeff Bodine right behind me. I, I, I can't remember who was behind me, but Elliot got around them. You know, it wasn't as much blocking going on as it is now. You yeah. know, people just, people didn't block like it did. There was a few, but it wasn't a common occurrence to slow somebody's momentum down. Uh, you know, so I started up high going through the gearbox, and, you know, some of them started pulling low. I got in front of that uh, momentum coming off of uh, two going into three. It really wasn't a threat, you know, unless I did something absolutely crazy or something, not run the right line or something. So the momentum had gotten broke up a little bit, so it was single file, and, you know, hell, it's never over to it's over, but uh, I can remember the one at Daytona had a chance to win as much as the one that we did win. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Victory Lane. Uh, you talk about a wild celebration. He gets a hug from his uh, crew chief, uh, Tommy Baldwin. Ward, Ward, come right over here and look right, right here. You've won the granddaddy of them all at Darlington, the Southern 500. And now you won the biggest of them all. How does it feel to win the Daytona 500? Oh, it feels great. It hadn't sunk in yet, but I tell you what, this race team has been working really hard, and, and we've gained a bunch. Bill Davis Racing Support Group has gotten stronger every year, and I'm just a part of it. So my hat's off to all of them and Caterpillar. I tell you what, uh, 
Dodge has made a big part of us being here today, and we really appreciate all their support, too. Tell us about the first part of this race today. Uh, you weren't there in the mix. Is that Was that planned to get there a little bit later? No, my car ran better uh, on older tires, and, uh, you know, you got to be there at the end of the race. And uh, some of the things that were going on early in the race wasn't very predicted to be there at the end, and we were just trying to be real careful. We really dodged a bullet over there when the 29 lost it, but uh, got to have a little luck, too. Exactly right. Tell us, did you think you were done when Sterling stopped over there? Did you know there was something wrong with his car? Did you think you were going to have to fit, settle for second? I saw Sterling smoking uh, after we had raced back to the green in one and two, and then he got out and looked at it, so I knew it was something up there. But, uh, you know, I was going to work with Sterling, and I had a good friend in front of me, a good friend behind me with Elliot, and uh, 09 Jeff and I got behind Elliot, I mean in front of Elliot, but... Uh, Elliot and I have worked really good before on these restricted plate races, so has Sterling and I, but uh, this is really uh, amazing right here. We're going to have a big night tonight. I'll bet you will. The winner of the Daytona 500 and the winning car owner right here, a man that's put a lot into this sport, Bill Davis, congratulations. Well, it's a great day for the whole team and Caterpillar and Dodge, and really proud of my guys and how hard they worked. And uh, on behalf of Bill Davis Racing, we want to say hello to Mike Snow, and we hope you enjoyed the race today. Okay, tell me as a car owner, what does it feel like to see your car grow across that line first at Daytona? Oh, it's unbelievable. You know, we won the Southern 500 last year, and I thought that was as big as it could get, but this is unbelievable. You know, this is it. This is Daytona 500, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I don't have words. I'm so proud of my guys. All right, one more little quick comment here from the crew chief, winning crew chief Tommy Bowen, who uh, going to engage now and going to settle down. This is a good way to settle it. Yeah. Daytona 500 weekend. I tell you, it's been an awesome week. Uh, you know, the, the Bush car ran good and the uh, Cup car ran good all week. And uh, man, I tell you, this has been uh, this is this is uh, a dream come true. You know, you've been dreaming about this my whole life of winning this race. You know. First, this race being on TV years ago with the Allison brothers, Kelly Yarbrough, Duke, and out. And, uh, man, I said, someday I want to be there and win that thing. And, uh, man, here I am. It's 2002, and I'm sitting in victory lane, Daytona 500. I, I wish I could say I'm going to Disneyland. I can't. <laughs> All right. Tommy Baldwin, the winning crew chief. Let's get down here, guys. No, he's going to Rockingham next week with the rest of us. At what point did it sink in that you had won the Daytona 500? From y'all. <laughs> the media, I mean, you know, yeah. it just it just was such a such a amount of attention put on the team and myself uh from being shipped to to New York. Um I can remember man, I was on the road until Thursday. I finally got back home Thursday, uh from leaving Daytona that Monday morning and I just wanted to go to the farm. And um, it, it was some fun times, you know. Uh, that's one of those things that, you know, when I'm introduced doing something that's gonna be one of the things that they uh, introduce me at. So for better or for worse, it's, it's there, you know. All right. I believe it was later that year, but are you remembered more for being a Daytona 500 champion or for John Boy and Billy? That's a good daggone question. <laughs> well, let's get one thing. Cat, skid, steer, loader. So I can say it yeah. now, right? Yeah. But let's let's go back for a minute. I've, I've got a temper that can come out. 
and I can say some cuss words on TV like damn hell or something like that, but I never said that stuff on national TV as mad as I was. Oh, yeah. So John Boy and Billy, this was a pre-taped. It was not live when I did it. Yeah. Well, I couldn't get the fax machine at 7 a.m. that morning to send me the script. I could not, and it probably was just out of paper because I'm not the yeah. most uh, intelligent person when it comes to this. That, w- that was long before computers, man. We had a fax machine. So I'm trying to wing it, and I've been to the, the uh, Cat Skid Steer plant. I've been there. I, I, before they're kicking this uh, new product off, John Boy and Billy played that live because I'm just playing with them, right? Yeah, when I yeah, say yeah. I ought to go to speech and school, I'm talking about what ought to be sent to Hargrave or go down to Carolina Tractor. I'm just playing with them because I literally could not say this damn poor word. <laughs> but today's time, you'd get fired for that. Yeah. So they played it live because I didn't do it live. I'm just, I'm yeah, just making yeah, a point to you. Yeah, yeah. There's no way in the world I would say those things <laughs> being live, knowing, yeah. that, knowing yeah. that my sponsor was going to hear it. Luckily, they, they took it in stride. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we posted a video on our YouTube channel about you and your cat skid steer loader. Uh-oh. And, Ward, somebody actually got mad at us. Really? For making fun. Making fun of me? Of you. Because they said, and I'm just going to ask, and if right. you don't want to answer it. No, what? Uh, they said that you had a speech impediment. You don't, do you? That's just the way I that you I never talk. could. So I got sent to uh, the some of the third grade, fifth grade, and maybe seventh to summer schools. Okay. So, you know, why Hargrave didn't, I, you know, I learned to be homesick at a pretty daggone early age, and after a week or two, I wasn't homesick anymore. But I couldn't pronounce things properly, like refrigerator or elephant. And I still, I still slur. You know, so no, did I have a speech impediment? I don't think I had a speech impediment. I don't stutter. But I have always, like if it's a bunch of S's or R's yeah. together, <laughs> I've always yeah. had a problem with it. Even to this, even to this day, I mean, but you, hey. In y'all's defense, I don't look like you're making fun at me. Uh, Jeb and I were in my Dodge truck the year that came out. We were riding around the farm. He's just a little chap, and they played it. <laughs> we both we both laughed <laughs> like hell. And, then, and Dad, I mean, Jeb turned around and looked at me real serious. He said, Dad, do you think they're laughing at you or with you? And I said, Jeb, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and that's the way I, you know. So how old was he when he asked that? That's a pretty astute question it for is. a kid. He's probably uh, 02. I think that's about when that came on. He's probably, uh, I don't know, 10. Okay. 11 or so. Wow. <laughs> So, Ward, you did wind up leaving Bill at the end of the 2003 season. Was that a mutual decision or what happened? No, it just, man, the team the team had not kept up with the technology. Uh, Bill had gotten caught developing Toyota trucks, which 
you know, everybody knew Toyota truck was a start, but they're going Winston Cup racing. So we lost Dodge support, fired Tommy Baldwin, and then Mike Brown, a guy that worked for Bill Davis, handed me an envelope uh, that had termination papers. And there was one president with Cat, vice president, that Bill and Mike had convinced I was the problem of their performance. And I don't know, man. I, you know, I called I called my rep at uh, Cat, and he brought up some damn lame in excuses about a late contract being signed or something. But you know, you live and learn. Um, I had turned down. The biggest rides in the sports being loyal to the 22 car. The same loyalty wasn't re repaid. And, you know, they went belly up not long after that. But, uh, hey, it's, 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 water, it's water over the dam now. Was I in the prime of my career physically and mentally if I was with a good team? Absolutely. You know, I tried to make it with uh, – with uh, Gene Hoss the following year, and you know, it was just they had a tie to Hendricks, but just wasn't able to use the resources. Tony Stewart obviously fixed that with his support. Uh, but I, when I quit, I quit. And the biggest reason I quit is I didn't know who to trust anymore. And there wasn't there wasn't any good cup offers. Looking back on it, you know. What I probably should have done, because I had some good opportunities in the Bush Series, I probably should have rebuilt my career. But I had this whole other life, you know, from creating the Ward Burton Wildlife Foundation in 96. So it wasn't like racing was a part of my life, but it wasn't my whole life. Now, I gave it 100%, don't get me wrong. Everything came second when I, when I was uh, racing full-time, but it bothered me. I dreamed about it and all that, but it didn't, didn't bother me here. It might have bothered me here a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned the fact earlier that you had turned down some rides when you were with Mr. Dillard, and then you talk about how you would turned down some rides when you were with Bill Davis. What uh, was in your DNA that caused you to be that loyal to the people who brought you along? Man, you know, I've had such great role models with my grandparents and my parents. A dear friend of mine, C.R. Sanders, um, and his friends, I was brought up with so many adults that live by the code. And I don't vary from a code. Yeah. What I say I'm going to do is what I'm going to do. And I'm as low as a puppy uh, staying in the yard. Um, these gentlemen gave me uh, opportunities when maybe I would not have had those opportunities. And I just felt like I need to treat people the way that... Uh, that I would like to be treated. Looking back on it, you know, if I had someone that uh, maybe you could call them an agent, I don't know. I, you know, I, I never had anybody like that around me. Maybe there were different ways to look at things. Maybe, maybe I could have 
still helped Davis in some way because you got to remember a lot of those times, particularly when MBNA, when I was Robert Yates or or Hendricks, I knew that if I left, MBNA was gone. I mean, there's no question about it. So were they going to be able to get another sponsor? What's going to happen to all these employees that I've become friends with? So I, I just took a lot of uh, – when I was making decisions, I was taking into account what it was going to do to others. When you made the decision to walk away from the sport, how difficult was it to do that? How badly did you miss it? I had a ball when I wasn't racing. Okay. Okay, so, I, you know, I was able to do things. Uh, my brother Brian and I had a lake house at Bugs Island Lake. We were able to do things with the family. Uh, my foundation, you know, was growing a lot. Um, the land management piece, I mean, so, you know, I'm up 435 every single morning. Have been my entire adult life and I work till d dusk every day and I don't know any difference so you know staying busy and having having projects going on all the time is not a chance to be depressed so in a way it took the pressure off well in some ways you know there's, there's a, look we all got our own stresses and our own pressures and things that uh bothers and that's that's just life right but you know i it it bought it's it's still looking back on it i know i could have won and had the ability to win a lot more damn races and make a more of an impact in the sport those decisions were a hundred percent mine of turning down some of those other opportunities but Hey, it's no reason to look back. I was lucky that racing uh, gave me a little bit of a voice to be able to make a difference in our natural resources. It certainly gave me the financial means to do so. And right now, uh, I'm just honored to be able to work on something that's more important than me. Speaking of something that's more important than you, um, 2015, your wife, Tabitha, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Is there any way to put into words what those next few months were like for the two of you and your family? Man, you know, been through hell, you know, learned, learned a lot more about cancer than ever wanted to, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the whenever you hear the, hear the C word, you know, one of the biggest things is what's the stage and is it in the lymph nodes? And it was in our lymph nodes. So, you know, she's, uh, she's been a trooper. She's, uh, she battles the side effects and the still taking these medicines for, you know, 10 years, which she's got about five more years to go. But, uh, you know, it certainly changed her. And it's, it's a... It's a changing, it's a changing event for about anybody. But uh, hey, she's still here. We're lucky with that. She's still a great mom, and uh, she's a good wife. So uh, hey, life has got a bunch of unexpected drama things that we're all going to have to deal with. The longer you live, the more you're going to deal with them, right?
What is it like for you today watching Jeb race? <laughs> well, I've gotten more used to it. <laughs> I mean, man, when it, when it first started, I swear, I didn't know if my heart could. <laughs> if, you, if you'd have tested my heart rhythm, I'm way up. When I was racing, I can remember they used to put stuff on. I'm still, I'm still just relaxed like I'm probably more relaxed when I'm not doing interview, yeah. but just real low. But... Uh, Man, Jeb, Jeb's a, a wheel man. He's uh, he's learning. Uh, so I'm a lot more comfortable with it. But, you know, it's still, it's still a dangerous sport, although NASCAR and many other innovators have done a great job to make it much more safer than even my group. So, yeah. you, you know, the generation before us, it's a damn wonder a lot more of them didn't perish, yeah. but a lot of a lot of drivers in the Dash, Arca, Bush, and Cup perished when I was racing. Yeah, I mean a many, and it was a yearly uh, event. Uh, so you're not seeing that anymore. So that that part, that part's always back here, but it's not as present it used to be. Yeah, Daytona and Talladega, you know, the way the cars are bunched up, you know, it, that's still a that's still a little bit of a zoo, and um, particularly like with my wife and other wives, uh, Jeb's wife, grandparents, everybody's on pins and needles at those two tracks. But um, Jeb has uh, got a great opportunity. He's worked his you-know-what all. We all have. So for him to build a race with Colic Racing full-time, and bring State and LS Tractor and Alsco Rocky Boots to the table and to have such a great authentic sponsor with Nutrient Ag Solutions, just what a what a blessing. Now you have two other children? You've got an older daughter? Yep. Sarah Sarah's the oldest of three and uh she's got uh a we Tab and I now have two granddaughters, Caroline and Clara. And uh, her husband, Gordy, is a great, great guy. And then my youngest son, Ashton, he's going to school in D.C. at um, American University. Unfortunately, with this crazy epidemic, he yeah. can't literally go to school, but yeah. that's where he's living up. Now, what's he planning to do? He wants to do something for his country. You know, he's trying to get an internship with the CIA this coming summer, so... I think Ashton's really wanting to uh, to find a way to to make a difference, and he's not that concerned just about a job and, and money. He he wants to do something that's rewarding. Ward, how would you like to be remembered by race fans? Man, uh, I drove that car as fast as it would go every single lap. I don't think back in when I had good stuff and back in the day, I don't think anybody drove in the corner deeper than I did, which maybe as they changed their tires was a hindrance, but I drove the wheels off that damn race car and loved it. Uh, I missed the interaction with the fans, always will. You know, you heard Scarlett and I talking, you know, Jeff sends out this stuff with social media, so we'll sign foundation hats and all that stuff. but. You know, just, uh, hey, man, it's always live by the code and not going to vary from it. I didn't vary from it then. I'm not going to vary from it now.
as I sat across the table from Ward at his office up in Virginia, I was struck by just how loyal he had been to the people who gave him his big breaks. As his Bush Series career progressed and he was winning races and he was starting to get some cup offers from some pretty good teams, but because Alan Dillard had given him his first big break in the sport, he chose to stick with him. And then on the cup side, he started out in cup with Alan Dillard, but then things didn't go quite the way that they would have wanted. And he did eventually move over to Bill Davis and Steve Ward won in his seventh start for Bill. And so he felt like things were where they needed to be. And he stuck with Bill and turned down some pretty big cup rides then. And it wasn't exactly what he needed. Well, you have to wonder how Ward's career would have fared had he not been so loyal and accepted a ride with some of these other teams who were pretty good when you stop and think about it. And as I mentioned, that at times worked to his detriment. The funding that Alan Dillard's team was getting in the Bush Series was pretty decent, and it allowed them to do well on the track. But then moving to Cup was this huge leap, and the money didn't exactly keep up with what they were needing to do to keep doing well on the racetrack. Then with Bill Davis, Ward said that he had turned down rides with the biggest teams in the sport. And when we talked to Jeff Burton, he said that Roush Racing had originally offered the ride in the 99 car to Ward first, but he wanted to stay with the horse that he rode in on. And, you know, we know what happened with Jeff. And Well, again, I repeat myself. You have to wonder where Ward's career would have gone if he had been Roush Racing's driver. But you got to credit him for being loyal to Bill Davis, with whom he won races. And then, Steve, he did get his termination papers from Bill Davis, basically handed to him in an envelope. And that evidently was not an amicable parting of the ways at all. Well, (laughs) apparently Bill Davis is not showing Ward the same loyalty (laughs) or showed him. Even Ward had his limits. And as the 1995 season wore on, Ward did start looking around to see what else was out there. And Alan Dillard basically said, if you want to leave, go ahead and leave. And even though Ward had finished sixth at Michigan in August, his best finish with that team that year, Alan decided to go ahead and cut Ward loose. And Steve, here's a line in the August 24th, 1995 issue of Winston Cup saying that you need to hear. Burton learned of the split when a reporter called him the afternoon of August 21st. And this was the Monday after the race at Michigan on Sunday. So this was a pretty quick decision that day. But evidently, a Winston Cup scene reporter cut Ward loose. Well, you know, as a reporter, you really don't like to be the one that gives the news to a driver, especially news like that because it puts you in an awkward position. We actually did talk about this back in episode 71, but I had that situation happen with Andy Santer. And if there's any person in that garage that you don't want to be mean to, it's Andy Santer and his wife, Sue. You do not want to do anything that would upset them because they are good, good people. But all of a sudden, I found myself in the middle and they had no idea that this was coming and I was the one that told him about it 
And so that was pretty much the same scenario as Ward finding out about his release from a reporter. Things happen. A reporter talks to an owner before the owner talks to the driver and you get in the middle of stuff and it just isn't a very comfortable position to be in. I don't know that we discussed it when we discussed the Andy Santer deal, but have you ever been in that position yourself? I don't recall that I have. I, I think I probably came uh, pretty close. I seem to remember once when I was talking to a driver about being released from his team. The closest that I ever got to telling him before the owner told him, I think it came, happened at a time when a driver said to me, yeah, I just heard about that about an hour ago. <laughs> That's as close as I ever got. Well, immediately, Ward moved to Bill Davis Racing. So those conversations had already been going. But I thought it was a little bit of a crazy connection because Ward had already been talking to George Debadar, who had helped get MBNA into the sport, and Bill Davis about making the move to their team. And George Debadar was actually the owner who had told me about letting Andy Santer go. So <laughs> there was a little bit of a connection there. But almost immediately, Ward starts doing well on the racetrack with MBNA as the sponsor and Bill Davis Racing as the team. Ward won at Rockingham later that same season. And again, it's still a race that I'm not certain how and why it shook out the way that it did. We're going to talk more about the event itself in our issue of the week segment. That was 1995, but then in 2002, one of the things that I love the most about going through an old issue of Winston Cup scene or discussing certain events with our interview guests are the personal memories that they bring up. Every time I pick up an issue of Winston Cup scene from 1989, I can see myself sitting in Sandy Estep's living room reading it <laughs> as we watch the race. Every time I see one of my stories that ran in scene in either 1993 or throughout most of 1994, I can see myself up in Sparta, North Carolina, working at the Allegheny News, just dreaming of the day that I would one day hopefully maybe work for Winston Cup same full time. And then when I talked to Ward about his win in the 2002 Daytona 500, I could not help but think of Sandy Estep again. Sandy and her son, my best friend Joe, were on the show back in episode 44. And here's Sandy's memory of attending the 2002 Daytona 500. One of my fondest memories. I know what you're going to say. One of my fondest memories. You know how you're having a conversation with somebody and you get towards the end and you say something to the effect of, well, come and go with me. Okay. And bye. Okay. Well, we were having this conversation. I had called you. You had called me. I was in the office. I was sitting in my cubicle in the office at Charlotte. And we were talking about me going to Daytona mm -hmm. and got to the end of the conversation. And I said, well, just come on, go with me to Daytona. See you later. Love you. Bye. 10 minutes later, maybe 30, you called me back. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, you said, come and go with me. So I've made my plane reservations. Pick me up at the airport the day before you leave. <laughs> and you went to Daytona with me for two weeks. Okay. Now let's back up some. You had asked me several times to go to Daytona. Okay. I never, right, okay. I never really cared about going to Daytona. Yep. I don't know why. 
I don't like sand for one thing. Florida just didn't interest me. But on this particular occasion, I thought, oh, well, you know, he's begged enough. We'll do it. Oh, okay. I, oh, oh. I bet. Okay. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I called work, arranged my vacation. So you went to Daytona as a favor to me, huh? I went strictly as a favor to you, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Now we, That's now when we he know asked the truth. me if, he, if I would be his godmother. He adopted me <laughs> as his godmother. And that was in February of 2002. And that was when I was the Bush Series editor at Winston Cup Scene. So I had a few connections in the garage. Mm-hmm. Now tell them what happened on race day. I got to ride in the pace car. Yes, you did. Yes, I did. And to this day, I can picture you <laughs> sitting on pit road. And then standing on pit road. Yes. And then circling the pace car because I had talked to Carl Simmons, who was the NASCAR official mm-hmm. who drove the second pace car on the pace laps. And I had talked to him about getting you in the pace car. Right. He said, if I possibly can, it's a done deal. Okay. Right. If I possibly can. Right. Didn't know for sure. Right. So I can remember being in the press box and I could see you down on pit road. You were circling. He told me to stand near that car. Don't let it leave without me. And I didn't. <laughs> right before they fired engines, he motioned you over. You got in. That is my fondest memory of being involved in that sport. I could see the grin on your face <laughs> from the press box. And I've got a photo of that. I do, too. And It's my screensaver. Yeah, you can see yourself sitting in that pace car, and I believe it was Lyndon Amick on the road behind you. And also, Greg Biffle Mm -hmm. were right behind you. Yep. I got done with the race. That was 2002. I believe Junior won the race in the number three Richard Childers car. I have no idea. Yeah. (laughs) Dell Junior won the race. I had to do the post-race interviews and sit in on all that. I did some running after the race. So after the race, it was probably three hours. Oh, a good three hours. Until I got back to the car. It was well after dark. You had already gone to the car, and you were still as giddy as a schoolgirl. You got it. I got I in was. that. I got in that car. <laughs> I got to do this, and I got to do that. And Greg Wiffle, and Lyndon Amick, I thought he was going to wreck us. Sorry, Lyndon. Hey, I was having a good time now. Steve, one question for you. Did you happen to catch just how big a role riding in the pace car was for Sandy? Yes, I did, and you're talking about memories. I have a memory that Sandy triggered about some guy driving a pace car and enjoying it so much he's been bothering the heck out of <laughs> and enjoying, it so, enjoying it so much he's been bothering the heck out of nascar to do it again <laughs> and ray Evernham and tony stewart and srx racing hey, yeah, whoever the- gets there. <laughs> if you're out there and you got a pace car i'll drive it <laughs> now with all that being said one of the most famous incidents in Ward Burton's career. And I actually asked him, Steve, are you better known for winning the 2002 Daytona 500 or John Boy and Billy? <laughs> <laughs> and there is a video that somebody put together of that segment on YouTube, and it has received like 187,000 views. It is funny, 
But here's the rest of the story. When we talked to Jeff, we mentioned the deal on John Boy and Billy and wound up producing a short YouTube video of our own. And then somebody commented on that video and said that we shouldn't be making fun of Ward because of his speech impediment. And Steve, I had no idea that that was an issue. I honest to goodness thought that it's just the way that Ward talks. That's what I thought for so many years. A little background here. What Ward did was a commercial on a popular radio show in Charlotte, John Boy and Billy. And it's always a funny show. And he was doing a commercial for the cat skid steer loader. And he couldn't say it. He just could not. He, he tried repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. And finally he says, boys, I quit. I can't say it. I can't say it. Now, as far as the speech impediment, I didn't know anything about that. And in fact, I thought the way Ward talked was just Ward. That's all there was to it. I asked Jeff about it once, and Jeff said he talked that way because he was raised in the southeastern corner of the house. <laughs> <laughs> when I do the editing of the podcast, on a typical interview, the sound waves for most people go up and down and up and down and up and down, and, and the differences in the height and the depth of their voices is pretty dramatic. They have a very uneven sound pattern when it's on the screen or whatever with ward it was basically one straight line <laughs> <laughs> that's about right but that's exactly the way that he talks now when i talked to ward i asked him about it and steve he did go to summer school over the course of like three different summers and steve when he said that he learned how to be homesick at a very early age Man, that, that really kind of put things into perspective. And he said that he didn't necessarily consider it a speech impediment, but he said that he still has trouble pronouncing certain words. And right after that John Boy and Billy segment aired, they were playing it on the radio again, and he and Jeb were going somewhere in their truck. And... At 10 years old, Jeb looked at him and said, Daddy, are they laughing with you or are they laughing at you? Well, it's with you. I got to tell you something. I, I used to, eh, shall we say, try to impersonate Ward's unique way of speaking. And I would talk to him using that imitation. And he liked it. And he got the idea that we could have a conversation between ourselves using Ward's way of talking and put that on TV and come up for some pretty good comedy bits, which we did. We had those bits on television more than once, and they were very popular. And it was a lot of fun. So, no, laughing with him, for sure. I'm going to be honest with you. I actually deleted the video that we had on our YouTube channel of John Boy and Billy and Jeff talking about Ward and all that. So. I don't know that whole situation, man. It, it just didn't. Yeah. I, I'm not going to be the one that's going to poke fun at Ward for the way that he talks because goodness knows it's hard enough for me to talk on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. That's the way I feel just like you. <laughs> Ward was let go by Bill Davis racing at the end of the 2003 season. And like I said earlier, it was not a very happy split. It was not mutual. He wound up driving the full cup season the next year for Gene Haas and then really struggled with Morgan McClure in 2007 in what turned out to be the last season for both Ward 
and Larry McClure. And Ward said that when he quit, he quit. And he made no bones about saying he didn't know who to trust anymore. And as he mentioned, Ward has this code that he talks about. What he says he's going to do is what he does. He did drive a partial Bush Series schedule for Bruco Motorsports in 2007. And he did say that in looking back, he could have rebuilt his career by going back to the Bush Series. But he also had this other life with the Warburton Wildlife Foundation that was also incredibly important to him. And so he went back to the woods, and I believe he's very comfortable in the woods. (laughs) I don't think there's any doubt about it. I did not hear of Ward's Foundation for Wildlife until after he retired, and it was constantly on his mind, and he has been ever since. He has dedicated himself to that foundation. His wildlife foundation is very important to him. His family is also very important to him. His wife, Tabitha, had breast cancer, and so that was a very definite change in focus for him. But the bottom line is just that Ward Burton is just Ward Burton. (laughs) And, And that is good enough, people. He does not show any pretenses whatsoever. Jeb is racing, of course. Sarah is married and has a couple of kids. Ashton, their other son, is going to American University in Washington, D.C. And Steve, after Ward Burton kind of told us about wanting to major in philosophy a couple of weeks ago, his son Ashton wants to intern with the CIA. You are kidding me. Really? Yes. So how about a Ward Burton, Ashton Burton, father-son, CIA spy TV series? (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood, have your people call my people. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, this week, Brian really kind of outdid himself. (laughs) We say that every week, but last week, Brian tweeted out a T-shirt that he has, a Dick Trickle ASA T-shirt. Now, Dick Trickle in NASCAR T-shirts, I seen. ASA, that's a new one on me. (laughs) He also tweeted one out an Alan Kowicki Quincy Steakhouse t-shirt. That's from his rookie year, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a pretty special couple of shirts. I, I would say so. And I would imagine that they didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> again, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> so again, listeners, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The October 26, 1995 issue of Winston Cup Scene featured coverage of that fall's Rockingham Race Weekend, and the Winston Cup race was moving along just like any other race at Rockingham would always unfold. It was a marathon rather than a sprint. Right. At that time, though, it had been shortened to 400 miles, so that's an important note. But it was unfolding just like any other Rockingham race would, but then all hell 
broke loose on lap 336 of the 393-lap event. Dale Earnhardt has just been black flagged. He's on pit road in front of Jim Phillips. And they're looking at the car. They don't do anything to it. The official said he didn't have all the lug nuts on. They had them all on. So Earnhardt goes back out on the racetrack. So uh, that may be up for discussion here then, if that be the case, Jim Phillips, says uh, Earnhardt goes back onto the speedway. You might get a word with Richard Childress and see what the situation is there, as Dale has lost an awful lot of ground being black flagged to pit road. Meanwhile, at the front of the field, it is not let up a bit as far as the competition is who's going to win this race. It is still Ward Burton and Rusty Wallace going at it just about as hard as you can as they have been all afternoon. They're at it again over in turn three. Here's Rusty Wallace dropping down to the inside of Ward Burton. Ford versus Pontiac. This is for the lead. This is for the lead here at the stripe. Ward Burton holds him off for the moment in the MBA Pontiac. Back to Jim Phillips. Let's get a word with Richard Childress. Richard, uh, made you come in. What for? They, the inspector said there was a lug nut off, and there was not, and had three inspectors looking at what. They just cost us a lot of positions. We're going to see how NASCAR is going to handle it. Well, that's a car owner, Richard Childers, for Dale Earnhardt. Again, they had no luck, that's all. He is being posted right now in 16th, one lap down, compared to Jeff Gordon now in 25th, running two laps down. From the North Carolina Motor Speedway, this is MRN Radio. The black flag dropped Dale Earnhardt from 6th place to 14th, one lap down. But then on lap 372, like, what, 36 laps later, Another caution was brought out so NASCAR could place Dale back in sixth place. He would have been placed between Dick Trickle and Darrell Waltrip on the racetrack. And that was all well and good. That's fine. We can debate on whether or not they would have done it for anybody else. That's fine. Whatever. But pit road was closed. So Dale could pass the pace car, get back on the lead lap, go back, and then take his spot in sixth place in running order. But then <laughs> Dale and RCR and three other teams then decided to add to the pandemonium and they went ahead and they pitted while pit road was closed. <laughs> yeah, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Listen to the complete confusion in Eli Gold's voice. Right now on the racetrack, they are keeping pit road closed and NASCAR right now is reviewing the tapes as to the exact positioning of some of the teams. Dale Earnhardt has gone to the apron of the racetrack and has passed the pace car and apparently is coming back all the way around. Now, what this would do is could potentially be a reversal of the decision of earlier. And again, I'm just speculating here. We listen to the NASCAR radio and at this moment there has been no explanation other than Earnhardt going around, he is being positioned right now on the lead lap at this second, and we will get a clarification. Jim Phillips, are they saying anything in the Earnhardt pit area? Let's ask Richard Childers. Richard, what's going on? They just told us to pass the pace car. We don't know what, you know, they, all our lugs were on a while ago when they called us in, so I don't know. you. Lap 377. Ward is the leader, and he starts to take off, coming off turn four on what he thought would be a restart. But instead, the yellow flag stays out so everybody else could pit. Oh, now I'm totally confused. (laughs) (laughs) Because if Dale Earnhardt has fresh tires, even though he's got to start at the end of the longest line of traffic for the penalty, 
it's still going to give him an advantage if he's got fresh tires and everybody else is on old. So NASCAR said, if Dale's got fresh tires, then everybody else can come in and have fresh tires too. The thing is, Dale pitted when he shouldn't have. And that's really what kind of got things, the confusion really rolling. But then Dale should have started at the tail end of the longest line of traffic on the restart, but he didn't. He went on to finish seventh while Ward beat Rusty Wallace to the finish line by 1.9 seconds to win the race. Here's my question. Does any of this happen if it's not Dale Earnhardt who was incorrectly black flagged? You want a simple answer? No. (laughs) I don't believe so. I am going to say this to play devil's advocate. I think there is something to be said for the fact that there was a championship in question. Dale went into that race 205 points behind Jeff Gordon in the Winston Cup standings. It was going to be pretty tough with three races to go for him to catch Jeff for the championship. But you did not want the championship to be decided by an inspector's incorrect call on pit road. So I'm thinking if it was anybody else in second place in the point standings, albeit quite a bit behind, I think NASCAR makes the same call. Well, I will agree with that, but let's face it. The truth is Dale was the guy second in points and he got the call, even though he should not have. If I understand all this mess correctly, (laughs) the problem (laughs) was when he pitted, when he should not have pitted. Well, absolutely. I think that's the case. When he pitted with pit road closed, I think that's, that's when they should have threw the whole thing out the window. And right. So you're going to start where you start, and we're not going to give you your spot back. And, Steve, here's the lead paragraph in your story on the race. There may have been angry doubts about who finished where and questions about the sanity of some NASCAR officials, but there was no debate over who won the AC Delco 400. That was the only conclusion I could reach after all that. (laughs) Ward went on, he won the race, and nobody had any objection to that. That was no source of confusion. You were quite a bit more eloquent than I was at the beginning of my sidebar on second-place finisher Rusty Wallace, and this is what I wrote. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Rusty said in that sidebar, I'm so proud for the kid to win his own race. I hate to be like the big kid bullying around on him, but all I know is he's leading the race and they throw pit road open. We fly down pit road. I beat him out. When I beat him out, they put him back in front of me. Well, I can understand what Russ is talking about for sure. Well, I think what the, I, well, I think what NASCAR was doing was when they threw the caution to allow everybody else to pit, they didn't want anybody to gain an advantage by having a really fast pit stop or a really slow pit stop. So they decided that they would just put everybody where they were before the caution. Okay. If you say so, Rick (laughs) (laughs) later, Rusty added, I don't have no complaints. I'm just going to leave it up to NASCAR. It was a bitching race. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) In a lot of different ways there, Rusty. (laughs) I was out to prove a point today that our team's tougher than ever. We proved that without a shadow of a doubt. There is also a photo in the photo spread that speaks volumes about how our photographers tried so hard to get the shot and how trusted 
the Winston Cup scene and the Winston Cup Illustrated brand was way back when. Dale Earnhardt is sitting on pit road after coming back in. There are a couple of RCR guys there and three NASCAR inspectors huddled around the right rear of the car. And there's a Winston Cup Illustrated photographer running out onto pit road <laughs> during the race to get the shot. Now, our guys were intrepid, I will tell you that. I did a little digging, and I got the story behind the story on the photograph from a couple of different sources, so I guess it's pretty accurate. The illustrated photographer in the photo is the one and only, the legendary LaDon George. LaDon was one of the greatest photographers who ever stepped foot in a racetrack. I will not argue with that one bit. LaDon was one of our top guys. He was in the pit shooting. And when Dale got black flagged, Richard Childress is raising three kinds of hell with NASCAR. (laughs) (laughs) Richard turns to LaDon and told him to go around the car when they pitted to get a shot of the tire before they changed it. So he was getting ready for the appeal. He was getting ready for the protest and he wanted evidence. And one of the NASCAR officials told Richard that only team members could go over the wall to which Richard Childress replied, he is a team member. I just hired him. Now that's called quick on your feet. That's for sure. (laughs) So LaDon goes around the car. He gets the shot, but the next week in Phoenix, he gets (laughs) called to the NASCAR hauler. (laughs) (laughs) And he was evidently given the well-known, you need us more than we need you speech. I've heard that one. (laughs) (laughs) Have you really? Okay. I want that story. (laughs) I'll tell you later. (laughs) It should also be noted because heaven forbid, we not mention anything having to do with Rick Mast here on the podcast, but Rick dominated the first half of this race. He led 139 of the first 255 laps before dropping a cylinder. Rick lost the lead the first time when he pitted during the event's fourth caution, which came out on lap 156 for Jeff Gordon's spin in turn four. And then on the restart, he missed a shift. Rick said in the notebook item, I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. I'd gotten so relaxed. The car was so good. And I was just trying to be so careful that I got laxed (laughs) (laughs) too relaxed on the restart and missed third gear. And still, even though he missed that shift and even though he dropped back a little bit, he came back and he led, I think another 74 laps. Rick guested as our co-host all the way back in episode 29, more than a hundred episodes ago. And here's what he had to say about feeling so comfortable at Rockingham in particular. You mentioned doing well at Rockingham. You'd finished third that spring at Rockingham. You've qualified eighth for this race. What was it about Rockingham that suited you? You know, I don't know. There, And I tell this, I've told this many times about race car drivers. There's something, when you're at a racetrack as a driver and you're going around, you're practicing, you, for some reason, some certain tracks with certain drivers, the car, you as a driver, you know exactly entering the turn where the car needs to be, where you need to get out of the gas. You know exactly where you need to get in the gas, and you know exactly how that car has to feel at every three or four feet of the turn. You, as a driver, you kind of know 
instinctively, this car needs to be doing this at this point, needs to be doing this at this point, needs to be doing this at this point. And if you got a good relationship with the crew and things are working right and you got some good stuff, the crew can make changes and you can get to that feel. You know what I'm saying? Not, not, you know, that's what, well, that's what every driver does at every racetrack. But there's certain tracks with certain drivers that you know exactly what that car should feel like. And if you hit on something with changes to make it do that, you know you've got it. That place was like that for me. Dover was like that for me. Uh, I've talked to Mark about it. Uh, Mark Martin, Dover is exactly like that to Mark. You know what I mean? He knew exactly what his stuff had to feel like at, at, at Dover at certain parts of the racetrack. Not every driver can have that feel for every single racetrack. You see, I've never heard or met a driver yet that knows exactly what his car needs to feel at every two or three feet of every inch of the racetrack, you know, and how to how to go about getting that. And Rockingham was not an easy place to get around, especially that turn two, yeah, that's from what, what I understand. I know, and that's what was crazy about my deal there, Rick. I don't know I don't know why it worked that way, what the deal was, but, you know, I'm sure I could go down 60 years old down. I guarantee I could go down there right now, hop in a race car, and get around there three or four laps, and I could tell you the car needs to do this, this, and this, because it was always that way with me at, at Rockingham. You know, some other tracks were that way, but my best two for that feel was always Rockingham and Dover. Ernie Irvin's return from severe injuries that he sustained at Michigan the year before, they hit a snag at Rockingham when he failed to qualify for the event. After finishing sixth at North Wilkesboro and a couple of decent performance in what is now the Camping World Truck Series. See what I did there? Yeah, I got Camping you. World. Okay, got you. Okay, all right. Ernie really struggled at Rockingham. He crashed during the morning practice session when he ran into the back of Todd Bodine, and then Ernie could muster only the 42nd best time out of 47 drivers during qualifying. Ernie was wearing an eye patch over his left eye when he returned from the injury, but at Rockingham, he had a pair of eyeglasses with a prism that could correct his double vision. I'm not so sure that if I was in charge at a racetrack that I would allow Ernie to drive a car, even with special glasses and things of that nature. you got to be somewhat concerned for not only his safety, but the safety of others. I mean, I think NASCAR might have been a little bit more stringent had that happened today. Well, it was a different time and a different place, Steve. Yeah. I, I think we all realize and understand that, but... Ernie said in this news item, everything has gone better than we ever expected, but it's still a long road to be able to come back 100%. There's my case right there. He was not 100%. Today's NASCAR said, no, you're not going to do anything until doctors tell us you are 100%. I think there are two things at play in this story. Number one, it reminds us of just how bad Ernie had it. And yeah. his comeback was not easy, but for him yeah. to come back and win at New Hampshire. And then he also won at Michigan, the track that nearly cost him his life. Right. That's what makes this story so powerful is just how much he did have to overcome. True. I agree with that hundred percent. And Ernie deserves all the credit in the world for returning back to winning form after that terrible accident at Michigan. One of the highlights of the fall Rockingham race weekend was always the Unical 76 Rockingham pit crew competition. And it was won in 1995 by junior Johnson and associates. And it was basically the very last hurrah before the team was sold at the end of the year to Brett Bodine. By the time the juniors team 
won that pit crew competition, it was very clear to Junior that he was going to sell and get out of racing. And the lead story in this issue and the scene on the circuit news section was about how word was beginning to spread that Junior was going to be leaving the sport at the end of the year. And that's been 25, 26 years ago now. True. And still a NASCAR without Junior Johnson, it's almost like <laughs> country music without Dolly Parton. <laughs> that's a pretty okay. good analogy okay bad analogy okay <laughs> that's the first and last time junior johnson has ever been compared to dally parton i can tell you that <laughs> i agree with that <laughs> but as i mentioned in the intro as confusing as the winston cup race was that weekend the finish of the bush series event the day before was every bit as thrilling. Brett Bodine is sitting there in third place. He's watching Mike Wallace and Johnny Benson slug it out for the win. But coming off turn four on the last lap, Mike took Johnny a little bit high and Todd slid underneath the both of them to take the win by about six inches over Mike, who had maybe half that much of an advantage over Johnny. But I'll tell you one thing, Johnny and Mike left room for Todd to make that pass and he took that chance. I have seen that happen more than once and you have too. Todd said in the race lead, Johnny and Mike got to racing each other and I just went to the inside and got in the gas. That's all it took. <laughs> that was Todd's very first race with team owner Ron Parker who had let Tracy Leslie go after the Charlotte race a couple of weeks before. As happy as Todd was with the vanish, Mike and Johnny weren't quite as satisfied <laughs> with what had happened. Johnny said, I thought we won the thing. I didn't even see the guy who won it. <laughs> but then Mike countered, I saw Johnny on the outside and I raced him. I had no idea Todd was underneath us. When Johnny came down, I started to come down and Todd was there. I was right in the damn middle. I had nowhere to go. <laughs> but still, Johnny Benson did finish third that day at Rockingham, and that was enough for him to clinch that year's Bush Series championship for base motorsports and team owner Bill Baumgartner. And, of course, that was the first of three consecutive titles for that team. So, yeah, he might have been disappointed with the finish of the race. He went home with the championship trophy. Pretty good consolation prize, if you ask me. <laughs> there was a feature in this issue on Kel Yarbrough's absolutely incredible 1977 season when he became the first driver under the Bob Latford West Cup point system to post 5,000 points. When you really look at the numbers, 1977 was just a stupid, crazy, phenomenally fantastic, successful season for Kale Yarbrough and Junior Johnson. Kale won nine races. He had 25 top five finishes in 30 starts. He had 27 top tens. He led 28 of the 30 races. He was running at the finish of every race, and he had an average finish of 4.5. I saw many races in 1977 that Kale won. And at the end of that season, which was the second championship in a row, by the way, on the way to three, I think that's the best season that Junior Johnson ever put together with a, any of his drivers. It was just so dominating all year long. The average finish evidently caught Kel's attention. And he said, <laughs> all year long? I didn't know that. 
I never realized it. Well, it was a good year. <laughs> a good <laughs> year. <laughs> yeah. Dale has a great grasp for the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> there was a feature in this issue that I did on Mark Hayes, who I met on pit road at Martinsville that year. He had been diagnosed with testicular cancer in February, 1994, and was just beginning to return to work at Bahari Racing as a show car driver. He lives here in Yakinville, so we immediately became friends. As I mentioned earlier, he actually served as a groomsman in my wedding to Jeannie. He is a yearly invitee to our Super Bowl party. We don't even invite him anymore. It's just a standing thing. He just shows up. Yeah, he shows up. (laughs) And his wife, Renee, brings a fruit pizza that I would kill for. Well, now I know why he's invited. (laughs) And there is nothing that I enjoy more than bickering with Mark Hayes over the pool that we always have for the game. Isn't that a form of gambling? It is. What church do you go to? (laughs) I go to the church of the Super Bowl party. (laughs) One year, I actually printed out the page, and I had 99 of the squares, and Mark had one. (laughs) that didn't last too long but mark did overcome cancer but it really took a toll on him and he has struggled with his health he's actually had a series of strokes in the past couple of years and he had another recently and so he is struggling right now so mark my good friend good old second string hang in there buddy I don't need that Richard Petty hood of yours just yet. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on to it, Mark. (laughs) The photo bio in this issue was on this kid, Chad Knauss, who was a fabricator and rear tire changer on Jeff Gordon's Hendrick Motorsports team at the time. Steve, he said that his favorite music groups were Garbage and Collective (laughs) Soul. Now, help me out. Is Garbage the name of a band? Or is that a description of his favorite kind of music? (laughs) Well, obviously, from his viewpoint, it's the name of a band. But I never heard of him. Garbage. (laughs) Okay. All right. He said that his heroes were his dad, John Knauss, and Ray Everham. So what a suck-up, man. (laughs) Back then, you'd look at that photo by and say, well, in a couple years, never see this kid again. Well, guess what? (laughs) Guess what? We found out different. And at the time, I was in charge of doing the photo bios. When I came on board at the end of 1994, that became my go-to assignment. So I couldn't tell you how many photo bios, personality traits I admire in a person. Honesty. Personality traits I dislike in a person. Dishonesty. (laughs) (laughs) My fantasy is to win the lottery. I mean, I could have written a lot of them. Myself, yeah. (laughs) Steve, there was also in this issue a news item about Gary Nelson taking in the German Grand Prix Formula One event. Have you ever been to a Formula One event? No, I have not. Have you not? Okay. Well, Gary said they opened up every nook and cranny for me. The big thing in Formula One racing is that it is a rivalry among countries. Here in NASCAR, a driver from North Carolina competes against a driver from South Carolina, and no one thinks anything about it. But over there, it's the Germans against the Italians against the English. (laughs) It's countries in competition against each other. And he brings up a very good point because, as we all know, F1 is worldwide. Gary said that while he was in Germany, he watched a replay of the NASCAR race in Talladega, and the event 
had German broadcasters. <laughs> that would be a hoot. <laughs> and maybe best of all, he got to drive on the Autobahn. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> he said, I was running about 130 kilometers an hour, which is about 85 miles an hour, I guess. And there was a policeman behind me. Then a Mercedes and a BMW blew past me and they had to be going about 150 miles an hour. The policeman just stayed behind me. So I took off going after the Mercedes and the BMW. The policeman kept riding along behind me and pretty soon he was out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the Autobahn in Germany is strictly you are on your own. I don't believe it has a speed limit. And I know you can see some pretty wild stuff on that stretch of road. Would you drive it? If you had the no. chance, <laughs> no. Hey, here's an idea. Give me the pace car and the autobahn. Oh no. <laughs> the way it was photo was a favorite feature of mine because it was throwback photos to the good old days. And in this issue, the shot was of Walter Ballard wearing a sombrero in the pitch during a race at Charlotte. Now the sombrero was one thing, Yeah. but right next to Walter, in the background is none other than Jeff Hammond. <laughs> At while, that time, a very young Jeff Hammond. While he was working for Walter. That was pretty cool, a pretty cool connection to an interview that we've done recently and that we're going to have again on the show in the next few weeks or so. But finally, and this is another case of the sports past meeting its present, the in-focus photo on the very last content page at the back of the paper was of Bill Elliott and Dell Earnhardt talking with Bill's wife, Cindy, and Bill is poking Cindy's pregnant belly with his finger. And who was Cindy expecting? Chase. Chase, yeah. So, yeah, Chase was in the pages of Winston Cup scene even before he was ever born. <laughs> and to tie it all in much closer, Cindy, whose maiden name was Cindy Carroll, was the photo editor of Scene for many years. Hi, fans. This is Butch Mock, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, Steve, we got through another one. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> so, listeners, please, if you can, give us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you listen. Give us a good review. Do the same for Firestorm. We would appreciate it. And again, it's not about getting a pat on the back. It is about helping other people notice what we're trying to do. We hope that if you listen to either our podcast or Firestorm, you will feel the need to write such a review. Back in my day, you could buy 20, 25, 30-pack of that top bubblegum with the five cards in there. So that's what, 150 cards you'd buy. Yeah. And not one of them was Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays. Never, <laughs> ever could get either one of those two. 